Good morning, church. I want to apologize ahead of time for my voice. I'm going to try not to shout on the back end of a cold. Shout out to Shana for the tea this morning. Thank you very much. Pray for me so that uh, my voice doesn't go out here. A couple sermons ago, we looked at Micah 5, 7 through 15. And I summarized a few key themes from Micah as we wrapped up the second section of the book. The end of the second section really honed in on Judah's idolatry, which was a major theme, has been a major theme throughout the book of Micah. And while we can learn a lot about God's people from that book and a lot about ourselves through them, God's character is really the central focus of the book of Micah. God's justice and mercy. Those are the two most prominent aspects of God that we learn about from Micah, his justice and his mercy. In fact, that's the series title, Justice and Mercy. And the book has been developing these themes since the very beginning. And our text today is the pinnacle of the theme of God's justice. So it's not the most uplifting passage in the world. But let's read it. Let's stand together and read Micah 6, verses 9 through 16. Micah 6, 9 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall not eat. You shall eat but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the, all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people." Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, we come before your word now. We ask that you would move in our hearts and in our minds by your spirit, that we would understand your word, that we would apply your word to our lives. We trust you in that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Micah 6, 9 through 16 is the second part of God's lawsuit against Judah. Last week we looked at the first part, verses 1 through 8, and you'll recall that this lawsuit isn't a criminal court case or a lawsuit someone might file against a company. It's a contract lawsuit, specifically a lawsuit over a broken covenant. In verses 1 through 8, God called his witnesses the mountains and the hills, to hear the indictment of the Lord against his people. Then Micah spoke for God in the courtroom, and he listed 
all of the ways God has held up his side of the covenant for the Israelites. And God even called upon his people to give an answer for their unfaithfulness. Had he done something wrong? Had God been unfaithful in some way? Of course, the answer was no. The people of Israel could not answer God for what he had done wrong for the reason that they had been unfaithful. All of the fault and all of the blame for the breaking of the covenant was laid upon them. So the people of Israel try to find out in verses six and seven, what would appease God? Would he be happy with really great sacrifices, really high quality gifts? How about a great quantity of gifts or, or even their own children, they conclude in verse seven. But no, God did not want any of these things. Their attempts to appease God through sacrifices like he was a pagan God would not work. Instead, God told them what he really requires, what he desires of them, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. And that's where we left off. But this week, we finish the lawsuit, and it doesn't look good for God's covenant people. The first thing that we're going to do this morning, we're going to do something slightly different than we typically do. We're going to look at the flow of the verses, and how, how it can be broken down, and, and it'll be broken down in, in three ways. Verses 9 through 12 are, are God's accusation against his people. Verses 13 through 15 are Judah's consequences for breaking the covenant. And verse 16 is a summary statement, restating accusation and consequences. And after we walk through these verses, I want to spend some time on an important question for the whole book of Micah. Why does God judge his people? This text, verses 9 through 16, answers that question. And it's central to understanding the whole book. In fact, it's central to understanding the justice of God in general. But before we get there, let's walk through the text. Verses 9 through 16. First, verses 9 through 12 are God's accusations. In verse 9, we see that it's the voice of the Lord who speaks. Now, this is Micah speaking for God, proclaiming the word. And we're told that he cries to the city. Micah, you'll recall, was a prophet to the city of Jerusalem. He was a street prophet in Jerusalem. That's the city in mind here. And the next couple of lines are a little bit unclear in the Hebrew. The ESV renders them, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name, hear of the rod, and him who appointed it. That first clause, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name, is an aside or an interjection. Okay, so we should read it with parentheses around it. Micah's encouraging his hearers to pay attention. Okay, so we should listen to that advice. The word of the Lord, the authority of God, his name, is always worth listening to. Amen? Then God's statement of accusation begins. And the first line of that accusation, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it, is a bit obscure. You see the word here translated as rod can also be translated as tribe. And the word that's translated here as who can also be read as the word assembly. 
If you have an ESV Bible, in fact, most modern translations of this will have this too. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a footnote by this section of the verse saying the meaning of the Hebrew is unclear or uncertain. And that usually pops up for for a few reasons. One might be if there's more than one word in a verse that can be translated a couple different ways. Another reason is if the, the text itself is broken or if manuscripts don't particularly agree. Okay, so that's no cause for alarm. We don't need to be afraid of that when our Bible says that. Good study and careful reading of the text always helps clarify these little issues when they pop up in our Bibles. And when they do pop up, they never obscure the text in such a way to change the gospel. So we don't need to be worried about that. And we can praise the Lord for good scholars who do their best to present us with faithful translations of the scriptures. This last clause then, while the ESV does its best here, I think this last clause is best read as, Hear, O tribe, and assembly of the city which fits nicely with what Micah has already said. He's not just addressing the city of Jerusalem, but the whole tribe of Judah. Jerusalem and Judah. The people are called to pay careful attention to what the Lord has to say, because he's about to accuse them of covenant unfaithfulness. God says, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? and the scant measure that is accursed. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. These are the reason God gives his people for the judgment that's coming. All of these accusations are related They have to do with injustice done in the marketplace. The treasures of wickedness in the house of the the wicked refer to unjust gain made by deceitful merchants, gain from stealing from people. And that line is parallel with the next when it says, and the scant measure that is accursed. Another way to translate scant measure is small or short ephah. And an ephah was a measurement of dry goods. So the question is, should God overlook the injustice done to people when a false measurement is used in the marketplace? Verse 11 says something almost identical. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Now remember where, where Micah is. Remember where Micah is and use your imagination. He's in Jerusalem, the spiritual and economic hub of the whole southern kingdom of Judah. And so if you were a street prophet, where might you go to be heard by the most people? First place I would go is the market. He's looking out on all of this unjust trade being done, and he directly condemns it. God calls him to where the most people are because their sin has to do with the marketplace. Should God forget the merchant who cheats his customers with deceitful scales and weights? Or a man who who makes his standard, his, his ephah, small, which is accursed by God? 
smaller than what was required by the kings? These are rhetorical questions, of course. The answer is clearly no. God should not acquit these people. He should not forget or pass by their sin. Now, we are not inclined to be moved by these verses unless they directly impact us in some way, if we have some experience with being cheated by a merchant or something. We can quickly admit that there are worse sins than trying to get away with a little light fraud in the sale of grain and spices. Out of all the sins that Judah committed, why does God, in the pinnacle of a statement on his justice, focus on the marketplace? When we find out that that we've been taken advantage of by some company, we vow to never use their services again or to buy their products again. We might even have legal recourse, right? Possibility to, to win a little bit of money in court because of how they cheated us. But what recourse did the common people of Judah have in the marketplace? Verse 12 even says, your rich men are full of violence. Rich men is a reference to the ruling class. If they could go to anybody, it would be the ruling class, the rich men, the kings. (coughs) Excuse me. The rulers, rulers of Judah here are are in on it. They're full of violence against the people. They're happy with the kickbacks they get from corrupt merchants, so they have no reason to care about the common marketplace goer. Excuse me. And their willingness to abuse the people trickles down to the rest of, of society. Your rich men are full of violence and your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. That's the culture of Judah. Violence, lies, and deceit. From top to bottom, Judah lives with this culture of injustice. So, what is God to do? What should he do about it? Second, Judah's consequences. Therefore, verse 13, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Their sins have brought God's judgment to their door. And as we're going to find out, this is a grievous blow. This word translated as as grievous has implications in the Hebrew of sickness and disease, decrepitness. It's a blow so devastating that it can be translated like a, like a crippling blow. A crippling blow. That's the, the best way to summarize the judgment God will bring upon Judah. A grievous, crippling blow. They'll never look the same. They will be made desolate, laid to waste. Verse 13 is an all-encompassing statement about the ex- extent of the judgment Judah will face. Grievous, crippling desolation. Verses 14 and 15 are more specifically address the curses God will bring upon Judah. They're referred to as futility curses. So they, they'll try to do things, but it won't work. It'll be futile. They're, they're, they'll work and they'll toil, but it'll be worthless. 
Futility curses were built into God's covenant with Israel. Micah is intentionally using these curses to remind them of the covenant and that they broke it. So he says, you shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. And Micah takes that almost word for word from Leviticus 26, 26. In that verse, the idea is that there's simply not going to be enough food to go around. God will strike them with famine. And he says, you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. Most of our English translations here render the Hebrew of this verse like like the ESV does. It seems to be referencing the futility of saving up, of storing away, especially of storing away food. The NIV, for instance, reads, you will store up, but save nothing. But most commentators agree with the traditional Jewish interpretation of these verses as referring to childbirth. You'll try to have children, but won't be able to. And the children you do give birth to, I will give to the sword. Scary stuff. But it, it echoes the words of the prophet Hosea. Hosea 9, 11 through 12 says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. They'll experience futility with food, with childbearing, and then even with their work in verses 15. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. Pictured here is Judah enslaved. They do all the work for these good things, but someone takes them away. They can't enjoy the fruits of their labor. Someone else will. Their, their crops will be reaped by another. Their olive oil will be, well, will be used to anoint another. Their wine will be had by another. Taken all together, the consequences God will bring to them because of their sin is grievous, crippling. All of these curses are taken from the law when God made his covenant with his people. In the covenant, God said that he would bless his people. He would truly bless them if they're faithful, that he would curse them if they're unfaithful. You can find two lists of blessings and curses in the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus 26, which I've already mentioned, and Deuteronomy 28. Micah is intentionally drawing the people's attention to this aspect of the covenant as a warning. Don't you remember what God said would happen if you break the covenant? So I I encourage you to read through those two lists of blessings and curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. The blessings outline a wonderful society full of God's provision and protection and life. It's a place of absolute prosperity. Praise God. (laughs) The curses are exactly the opposite, though. God curses every aspect of life, and they're kicked out of their land even. They're made a desolation. 
Micah doesn't exhaust the list here that we can find in those two places. But he includes enough to remind them of the the dangerous ground that they walk on. So verse 16 comes in and brings it all together with third, a summary statement. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Omri and Ahab. If you had to choose two kings from the northern kingdom that were the absolute worst, you could scarcely do better than these two. Omri was Ahab's dad. So we're talking about a dynasty here. And they were horrible kings. From the secular world's point of view, Omri might look like a good king, actually. He was a successful general for his father. He united the northern kingdom of Israel after some political unrest. He successfully negotiated an economic treaty between Israel and a local nation called Tyre through the marriage of his son Ahab to the princess of Tyre. You might know her, Jezebel. And this undoubtedly brought economic prosperity. Certainly did. But for all of his outward success, the Bible describes him like this in 1 Kings 16.25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. He was the evilest king the northern kingdom of Israel had yet from God's perspective. He led the people into worse idol worship than Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, who set up the golden calves in Bethel and Dan. He was worse than him. But Ahab, from 1 Kings 16, 30, we find out Ahab was even worse. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then there's chapters and chapters dedicated to Elijah's fight against Ahab and Jezebel. Omri gets two paragraphs. Omri and Ahab were bad kings. They led their people away from the true worship of the Lord. And now God is saying that the people of Judah are following their statutes and works. Micah took the two worst guys you could think of and told Judah, you're being like them. That should be a wake-up call to them, right? But remember, this is a summary statement of verses 9 through 15. Okay, so Ahab and Omri were mostly known for their idolatry, which Micah doesn't mention in the accusations in verses 10 through 12. He doesn't mention idolatry. He mentions the marketplace. But you'll remember the story we talked about all the way back in chapter 2 of the book of Micah. Ahab wrongfully seizing a vineyard for himself and killing the owner by setting up a a fake trial with two false witnesses. Ahab is the perfect example 
of the injustice that is happening in Judah. And that's what Micah has in mind here. These guys weren't just idol worshipers. They oppressed and subjugated their people. They defrauded them from their own land and stole what did not belong to them. And now that attitude, the statues, statutes and councils of Ahab and Omri have permeated even to the marketplace of Judah. They walk in their councils. They do to each other the things these evil kings did to their people. And so the consequences Judah will face are summed up like this. I will make you a desolation in your inhabitants, a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Not only will God take their land away from them, thereby making them a desolation, he will make it clear to the world that they deserve it. That they're not victims. They will bear the scorn of the whole world. They'll be a hissing, made a mockery. Those are God's accusations and Judah's consequences. All in all, Micah, 9, Micah 6, 9 through 16 is not a particularly encouraging passage, is it? It's not one you'd print out and frame to put in your dining room. You won't find this as a decoration at Hobby Lobby, right? But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot to take from these verses, a lot to learn about the Lord and a lot to learn about ourselves, even encouraging things. So I think it's worth asking a question as we seek to apply this passage. Why does God judge his people? Throughout the scriptures, we see God doing this. It's a confusing question for many. A prevailing theme throughout the Old Testament is God's impending judgment against Israel. All of the prophets are concerned about judgment in one way or another. As the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah devolve into idolatry and injustice, the threat of God's judgment continually increases. Micah is a prime example of this. From the very outset of the book, Micah has been warning Judah of the judgment that is coming their way. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, is all about the invasion of Assyria in Judah as a form of God's judgment against these little small towns. Chapters 2 and 3 were a warning to the oppressors in Judah that they would be sent away eventually. Chapter 4 promises that Judah will be exiled to Babylon. And only by God's gracious action will they be brought back. And chapter 5 gives hope to the remnant, but promises that he will punish Judah with his purifying justice. And here in chapter 6, it all culminates right here. They will be made a desolation and a hissing. So why does God judge his people? Why Why doesn't he just forget their sins, acquit them, as Micah asks in 10 and 11. If we're looking for an answer to this question from the book of Micah, then I think there are two clear answers. First, because of Judah's unjust practices, God judges his people first because 
of their unjust practices. All of the accusations found in 10 through 12 boil down to the lack of justice in the nation of Judah. This shouldn't throw us off at this point, this far into our series in Micah. Judah's injustice has been clearly seen throughout the book. Remember chapter 2, we see powerful people seizing what isn't theirs in verses 1 and 2. They're described as cannibalizing the people in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We even see those who call themselves prophets, false prophets, desiring to tell people only what they want to hear so that they can put something in their stomach. And remember what Micah said about the heads of the house of Israel in 3.9? They detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. All of this is what made chapter 4 so powerful. The nation of Judah was so unjust that God had to promise he would bring justice himself. And in these verses, verses 10 through 12, we get down to the nitty-gritty. God specifically calls out the merchants who lie and deceive in order to make money. Have you noticed in the book of Micah the injustice of, of Judah has centered on economic injustice the whole time? The wrath of God like we see in verses 14, 15, and 16, the, the wrath of God boils over against his people because they're cheating each other in the marketplace. And I asked the question earlier, out of all of the sins that Judah had committed, why does God focus on the marketplace? Why does he care that much about a little cheating here and there? God cares about these unjust practices because they betray a horrible attitude toward our fellow man. They betray an incorrect view of our own sin. And they betray a small view of God. The people of Judah, especially the ruling class and the merchant class, failed to do justice and to love kindness. They looked at their fellow man, people made in the image of God, and decided they were better than them. We can take advantage of these people. Instead of protecting and loving each other, they harmed each other. They took each other's lamb. They defrauded their neighbor. They used unjust scales. Their view of their fellow Israelite was so abysmal that they dehumanized and degraded each other in their hearts and in their actions. These people, the the nation of Judah, was supposed to be God's representation on earth to the nations. But even in the little things, like their economic practices, they looked indistinguishable from the world around them. A point of application and heart examination right now from the book of Micah and that the book is constantly trying to make is do we treat other people as fellow image bearers of God? Do we treat them as worthy of dignity and respect and love? Or are we out for our own gain 
in our own success, despite the people that we hurt. Micah's direct application for the people was in the marketplace. So let's bring it there for us. Do we honor the Lord with our money? Judah was doing great injustice with their economic practices. Do we do the same when we think that cheating, a little light fraud, is good business? Do we lie about the products that we sell in order to sell more? Do we lie about our income to keep more of our tax dollars? We might not weigh our products on balances anymore, but that doesn't mean we don't have opportunities to steal. Do we steal from the companies that we, sh- the companies we shop at, these grocery stores, these large stores, because they won't notice? Do we steal from the places that we work for? Do we take advantage of the goodwill of our families and friends? But we don't just have to ask negative questions here, accusative questions. There are plenty of questions to conclude from this that should encourage us toward righteousness. Do we run our companies in a way that honors God? Have we created them that way? That the number one thing your company does is honor the Lord? Do we serve our employers with the best of our ability because we recognize that in every place we represent our Savior? Are we model citizens in our community by treating everybody with dignity and respect that we encounter? Are we generous with our resources and hold an open hand to the downtrodden? Look back at verses 10 through 12. What don't you see here? You don't see any mention of the victims. Of course, Micah focused a lot on the victims in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. So his reason for not mentioning them here is not because they don't matter. It's because the problem isn't with how the actions of the unjust make their victims feel. We've got to get this straight. Even though it does matter how we make people feel. The ultimate problem with the unjust is their hearts. When we steal from large grocery stores or commit fraud on our taxes, we we can be tempted to think that it's not a big deal because it doesn't really affect anyone. Those are huge organizations and the government. But that doesn't make something you do right or wrong who you affect. What defiles us is our hearts, Jesus says. I can't list all of the possible ways you individually could take advantage of people or act without justice toward your fellow man. So it's time to examine your heart. Do you have, do you have the firm conviction that injustice runs against the message of the gospel? Our hearts should overflow with our love for the Lord to the lost and to the broken, to everybody around us. We should see every non-Christian as a fellow image bearer in desperate need of salvation, not as an enemy or somebody that isn't worth as much as me so I can take advantage of them. 
God judges his people because of their unjust practices toward each other. Their greedy, sinful hearts controlled their community and violently damaged the covenant between them and their God. Did you get that? They broke the covenant with God by being unjust to each other. And we cannot properly love God without loving his people. God judges his people because they were unjust. They were wicked. They broke the covenant. Which brings us to the second answer. God judges his people because God punishes the wicked. God judges his people. In fact, he judges because he punishes the wicked. When Micah compared the rulers and merchants of Judah with the the kings Omri and Ahab, he kind of sealed their faith. He, He declared their abject wickedness. Our preparation for worship this morning was Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The words of the Lord spoken to Moses as God revealed himself to him. You remember the story? God promised he would reveal himself to Moses. Show him his backside. So he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he tells him who he is. That he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations and forgives sins. Praise the Lord. It's amazing that when God reveals himself, he does so mostly with words. Praise God that he keeps steadfast love. Amen and amen. This is good news. God's grace is essential to his person in relationship to his people. He is a merciful God. But his justice is also essential to his person in relationship to his people. He goes on. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. This is our covenant-making God. This is the God we worship this morning. Don't get it confused. He is just. And for those who fall outside of his grace, he will not excuse their sin. Jonathan Edwards, the famous American Puritan pastor and preacher, gave maybe his most well-known sermon on Deuteronomy 32-35. Actually, just a small portion of that one verse, but I want to read that whole verse to you. His most famous sermon from here. Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. The sermon title is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a lot to take in if you read it. It's a classic fire and brimstone Puritan, uh, Puritan sermon that were really well known at the time of the Great Awakening. These these sermons worked to bring people to faith in Christ when he gave them. But I wonder if our generation needs to hear the words of Jonathan Edwards, his main point that he says, 
Listen to it. Listen to his main point. The observation from these words, that is from the passage in Deuteronomy, that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Our view of God can be so miserably shrunken down that we forget that he is God, that he is a God of justice and holiness, that he executes judgment against the wicked based solely on his patience and his good pleasure. Our view of our own sin can be so miserably shrunken down that we can be tempted to think that it's invisible even to God, that God wouldn't care about the small things. But if we could see the monstrosity that our sin actually is in the eyes of God, we would echo the words of Isaiah when he encounters God's real presence. Woe is me, for I am lost. In fact, Micah will say the same thing at the beginning of chapter 7. Why does God judge his people? Why does God judge sinners? Because he's holy. And if we have a view of God's holiness that allows for, sw- for sin to be swept under the rug, then we don't understand God as he revealed himself. And we don't understand sin. That's the majesty of the cross. That though we were enemies of God, he sent his son to pay the penalty for sin. Our wickedness, our separation from him, our idolatry, all of them were just like, just like the nation of Judah, just like Omri and Ahab. But because of the rich, richness of God's grace, we have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. When we encounter a passage like Micah 6, 9 through 16, first thing we do is, is say, okay, I'm not sure what to do with that, usually when we read it. But when we encounter a statement like this of God's judgment, righteous judgment against his people, it gives us a chance to remember the holiness of God, the greatness, the bigness of God, and the lengths that he went to to satisfy the demands of his justice in Christ. And so if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, the bad news is you're still in your sin, which is not a small thing. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, then hear that God punishes the wicked. That's not good news. The good news is that you can place your faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his death and in his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Do so, I implore you, lest God's judgment be poured out on you like it was against his people rightfully. Our God is holy and just, and he will not pardon the wicked. even though we were all here once wicked, even if you still are in that wickedness and sin, he can take it and nail it to the cross 
where his son paid the price. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we confess today that we do not deserve your forgiveness. Oftentimes we forget how wicked we are and how ready to go to sin we are constantly. We confess that we think very little of our sin. But Lord, we know that you do not by any means exempt the wicked or acquit them. But Lord, we we praise you and thank you that the wrath that was reserved for us was poured out on Christ on the cross and that his sacrifice was sufficient and that he rose from the grave. We worship you and we thank you. Any righteousness that we have is given to us by you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.